Hello, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the videocast where we teach you how to make an income while traveling the world. And on today's episode, we have a pleasure of interviewing a fellow podcaster, a fellow podcast host uh, who has a great podcast, uh, which has been running for about a year plus. Uh, it's called Counting Countries. And I actually found out about it from a previous guest on this show. Uh, his name is Eric uh, from The Minority Nomad. And uh, Eric uh, was a guest of Rick's show and the podcasting community and also the counting community, uh, community and the digital nomad community is quite tight. Uh, so I found out about Rick and uh, you know asked him to be on this show. And uh, by the way, I've been listening to quite a lot of uh, Rick's episodes over the last few days just uh, before I go to bed and uh, when I have some free time. And they're, they're really uh, great episodes because he does a really deep dive into uh, people's stories of uh, everything from the background, traveling when they're, when they're kids with their parents, all the way up to why they decided to uh, uh, count countries, if you will, and see every country on the planet. Um, so I'd like to do something similar uh, with Rick. Uh, so why didn't you share a little bit about your backstory and how it was as a wee lad uh, growing up with your parents and uh, traveling with them and uh, you know, up to where you are now, Rick? Okay, thanks, Ricky, for having me on your program. Pleasure to be here. Um, I've had a lot of opportunity uh, for traveling over my life, but it came in uh, starts and fifths, so to speak. So uh, I grew up in Boston, and I remember traveling a couple of times with my parents to the Caribbean. Um, we also had some Filipino friends, so we ended up uh, in junior high and high school actually visiting this Filipino family uh, in Manila, and we also added on trips to Japan and Hong Kong. So not an extensive amount, but I did get introduced to international travel during school while growing up. Um, yeah. And what and, happened next? Uh, that? Uh, over next, let's see, uh, like a uh, more of a traditional corporate life. I went to college. I got a job after college in the financial services industry. Um, traditional job, only a couple weeks off from work. I was doing a ton of domestic travel uh, for my jobs in the financial services industry. I probably would do, over time, uh, 40 of the 50 states when traveling. A lot of times I'd make weekend or week trips out of my work trips if I was mm -hmm. going somewhere fun but I really stopped doing a lot of international travel when doing these uh, corporate jobs. So, uh, you know, uh, what made you transition out of your corporate job into becoming more of the digital nomad, if you will, or the world traveler, the globetrotter? Yeah, it was a uh, easy transition because I, I got laid off from my job. So <laughs> uh, there yeah. was the financial crisis in 2008 and I was uh, informed by management that in about a month, my services were no longer going to be needed. Uh, I was quite excited. I despised that job. I despised my boss. So I actually looked at this as a uh, silver lining type situation. Um, so in 2009, I left the US for a 11 month trip around the world. When I was on that journey, I knew, I knew in my heart, I couldn't go back to my old life. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I knew I could not go back to the corporate cubicle life, um, <laughs> even though I would miss the money, 
I just, mm. it, it wasn't very inspiring and fulfilling for me. So you got the travel bug, if you will. Uh, tell us about the travels during uh, that uh, journey. Uh, which countries did you visit and what were some of the highlights? Okay, so that was 11 months in 2009 and I started to fly west and just started to, to go to one new country after another new country uh, and picking mm -hmm. up as many new countries as possible. Um, you know, I went to Korea, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, uh, Brunei, Indonesia, Timor Leste, Nepal. I went to Qatar, Brunei, Kuwait, Jordan, Syria, Yemen, Egypt, Israel, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Oman, Dubai, Armenia, Georgia, uh, France. Then I went all the way over to South America. I went to Argentina and ended in Antarctica. Wow. So it was a pretty incredible 11 months, covered a ton of ground. Uh, just had a fantastic time exploring, seeing, meeting new people, real, real rewarding travel uh, trip. So how many countries was that? You listed quite a few. I, didn't, I, I wasn't fast enough to count those. Uh, so tell us, how many countries did you visit in such a short time? Yeah, I, I don't know offhand. So, um, you know, it, some, some countries were very short. So, for mm. instance, uh, I went to Qatar, Kuwait, and Bahrain. I only spent two nights in each country, mm -hmm. where Armenia I spent two months, Thailand I spent two months. Um, so depending on the travel, or de rather depending on the country and how much interest I had, that would really kind of uh, set the calendar of how much time I was spending there. You know, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar as an example, relatively not so much to see mm -hmm. compared to in Indonesia. And in addition, they're that much more expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, my planning wasn't uh, 100% uh, very smart. I mean, I was visiting in summer, so it was like 40, 45, 50 degrees as well. So another yeah. good reason not to be spending too much time there. And you mentioned all these hot countries, and you actually visited one of the coldest countries or continents on the planet. And you, I think you're one of the first guests uh, on the show that uh, has been to Antarctica. So tell us a little bit about uh, that trip. I think a lot of our listeners and viewers would be interested in uh, what made you choose Antarctica and how was that experience? Tell us a little bit more. Unpack, uh, unpack it, so to speak. Yeah, so Antarctica was my seventh continent. And it was actually a really cool experience. So I ended up traveling with my dad. So it was a uh, father and son epic cruise trip that we did together. Um, I would say the most traditional, typical ways to get to Antarctica, you're going to end up going down to Ushuaia or Fiera del Fuego, southern tip of Argentina. Mm -hmm. That's where I would say, by understanding, most of the cruise ships leave for Antarctica. Mm -hmm. um, jutting out of Antarctica is sort of like a little finger that's reaching out to uh, Ushuaia and this is I think like one of the closest points to be able to visit uh, Antarctica. So a typical cruise you spend about two days going through the Drake Passage which is actually mm -hmm. just open seas. Um, you either have good luck or bad luck so you're mm -hmm. either going to have incredibly rough waters where you're getting seasick, 
you're not feeling great, or we were pretty fortunate we had pretty smooth sailing going to Antarctica. You arrive in Antarctica, and I would say it's traditional cruise, uh, probably four days of floating around Antarctica with typically a visit in the morning, a visit in the afternoon where you jump on a Zodiac and you're able to walk on actual Antarctica. Uh, saw a ton of penguins, I mean thousands. Saw whales, walruses, absolutely, I mean, absolutely fantastic and incredible to have the experience of going there. Uh, you know, a lot of people have the objection of cost when it goes uh, when it comes to Antarctica. So, did you book it in advance, or did you just show up in, in Ushuaia and hope for the best? So, tell us a little bit more. How did you manage the the feasibility of it? Yeah, my understanding is you can play that game, and the game being, you go to Ushuaia and you sort of wait around to see if there's mm -hmm. an empty berth that you're able to go at a discounted rate. Mm -hmm. I was going with my dad. It was my uh, Christmas present, so to speak, so <laughs> he did pick up the tab. Uh, I mean, from what I've looked at, I mean, I think the cheapest cruises is probably about $5,000 a person, give or take, to go to Antarctica. So, I mean, definitely not cheap, but, you know, a little bit cheaper than flying to outer space. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, uh, you know, I think uh, those are the numbers I've been hearing as well, about 5,000 US. Uh, uh, give or take, I think it depends on your luck uh, and it depends on how, uh, how, uh, how, uh, how far in advance uh, you uh, book it. If you want to pay a lot more, you can. Uh, so uh, si since that uh, epic uh, trip around the world where you covered, uh, you know, uh, all these countries, uh, tell us about the next few years. Uh, where has uh, this globe taken you uh, between then and now? Yeah, so I got back to the U.S. for all intents and purposes in 2010, and then I needed to figure out what I was going to do since <laughs> I wasn't going back to corporate life. Yes. Um, over time, um, one thing led to another. I started investing in real estate in Chicago, where I was living at the time. Um, there was the you know pretty uh, severe economic contraction and real estate crash in 2008. And there were a lot of opportunities when it came to investing in real estate. So in 2011, I started dipping my toe in the water and started trying to buy apartments, mm. rent them out, and in essence, live off the spread. So mm. whatever the difference was, the profit, that was in essence my income, uh, which I was going to live off of. Uh, at the same time, I started to dip my toe back into the water in terms of travel. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, in 2012, I left uh, to India for a couple of months um, where I took place in the Rickshaw Challenge. The mm -hmm. Rickshaw Challenge is a 2,000-kilometer race across India where participants drive a rickshaw. So I did that. I actually brought a two-person film crew with me, and they filmed me and my friend as we drove the rickshaw across India, and we um, produced a full-length travel adventure documentary called Hit the Road India. Um, in addition to that, I spent another month traveling in India and also visiting a couple of new countries as well uh, during that year. So. Simultaneously, I was building my real estate business and starting to make sure I was making travel 
more of a part of my life as well. Yeah, definitely, I want to ask you about the uh, the real estate side of things, but I, I'm really curious about the rickshaw journey as well. Uh, um, I've been hearing more and more about that uh, online and other adventure travelers who are uh, taking part in that. So tell us more about that. I mean, uh, it's pretty incredible that um, uh, you would actually ride a rickshaw across the con uh, across the subcontinent, uh, the country of India. Tell us a little bit more about that journey. How was it? What were some of the highlights of uh, exploring India through uh, that avenue, not through the traditional backpacking or traveling um, through trains. How was it uh, traveling through rickshaw across India? Yeah, and just to take a step back, I actually mm -hmm. did a rally before. So in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, two of my friends and myself, we flew to Budapest, Hungary. We mm -hmm. bought a car, and over the next 17 days, 7,000 kilometers, we drove from Budapest to Yerevan, Armenia. Wow. This was an awesome adventure competing against 10 other teams, um, fantastic, different, unique countries, covering so much ground, ton of adventure. When I did that rally, the Caucasian Challenge, that's what it was called, I started to learn about all these other rallies. So that's what got me to India because I, I found about this rickshaw challenge. The rickshaw challenge, I think uh, you kind of phrased it in a really good way. I mean, this is not your typical way to visit a country. So you're not backpacking, you're not on a group tour, you're not staying at five-star uh, hotels, and you're not even necessarily typically seeing the traditional things a tourist might see. So uh, all the different teams gathered in Mumbai, we got a day of training on how to operate the uh, rickshaw. Rickshaw is a three-wheeled vehicle. It's only seven horsepower. So most riding lawnmowers that you buy today are 20 or 30 horsepower. Um, the, uh, the sides are open. There's not a lot of protection to the elements. And it's not meant to ride across the country either. Typically, the rickshaws are used within the city, almost a lot of them as taxis. So we gathered up in Mumbai, and for the next 12 days, we drove across the country. And there were so many obstacles and challenges. Uh, India can be an amazingly special place, but it can also be, I think, one of the more challenging countries to be in. Um, so one, we're driving through the monsoon season. Um, these are crazy rains. Uh, we are completely wet on some of the days because again the sides are completely open uh traffic is horrendous and scary and overwhelming probably the noisiest traffic i've heard everywhere everybody keeping their horn we would get lost every day we were trying to climb mountains in the seven horsepower vehicle we ran out of gas like 16 times setting a record uh we got detained by the police so Anything I think that you could imagine did happen to us over the 12 days. Amazing, and I'm glad you made the documentary. I'm definitely going to have to uh, take a look and uh, see it. Uh, something I'd love to do, I mean, uh, uh, for those listeners and viewers who don't know, my background is Indian, uh, and uh, I'm born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, but uh, I love the subcontinent. Uh, obviously, it frustrates me just like it does any uh, tourist who goes there with the people trying to rip you off. and. Uh, uh, kind of the sensory overload, and uh, there's a lot of stuff that just 
uh, it's crazy, but there's a lot of amazing stuff in India, and I would love to do it uh, the way you did it in a rickshaw. So uh, uh, who knows what the what the future holds? But maybe I'll end up uh, doing uh, a similar kind of journey. Now uh, you mentioned all these other rallies. Uh, um, uh, there's, I think, the Mongol rally. Tell us a little bit more about that. That um, those rallies, uh, that type of adventure travel. Yeah, I kind of um, there's these rallies. There's a couple dozen or three dozen of these rallies around the world being organized by different companies. I almost call it sort of a subsect of tourism. So it's a very non-traditional way to visit a country. So typical of the rallies is one, you are driving a totally inappropriate vehicle for the distance you are traveling. And the special part of the trip, it's not visiting uh, the Taj Mahal, it's not visiting some beautiful church. It's the adventure that happens in between the starting point and the finish line. So when I think about my trip in India, I spent a ton, uh, a ton of time at gas stations. So how many tourists go to India and go, oh, I really had a great time at gas stations. But you would uh, pull up to gas station and for whatever reason, literally there's 10 to 20 people working at each gas station in India. And before we would know it, we ended up spending an hour before we left again. So we were taking photos with the gas station attendants. They would drive our tuk-tuk. We would eat samosas with them. We would sit and drink a Coke with them. We would hang out with them. Um, and before you know it, again, we'd look down, an hour had elapsed, we're back on the road again, and before the end of the day, we'd be visiting some other gas station somewhere. So I think the rallies get you off the beaten path. So if you were looking for genuine interaction with real people, and you want to see how real life takes place in India or Albania, you want to think about taking one of these rallies. <clears throat> Definitely something I'm going to explore more of, and I, I look forward to interviewing people about that specific topic. So if you have taken part in a rally, if you're watching and listening to this, reach out because we'd love to have you on the show covering that subject. Um, so, Rick, um, you mentioned real estate, and um, uh, that's also something we haven't covered yet. We're, we're always looking for ingenious ways to make money uh, so that we can travel the world. And obviously, real estate is one of the biggest money makers on this planet. And I think it's an overlooked uh, area of being a digital nomad because if you have a solid real estate investment or stocks or options or something solid, then you can actually uh, travel uh, and not having to work uh, like some of us are doing coaching, consulting, social media marketing, etc. So I'd love to hear a little bit about um, uh, your real estate portfolio. Uh, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more. You don't have to go into like uh, minuscule details, but just kind of an overview. Yeah. So um, just to take a step back, um, my real estate investment started from a mistake. So in other words, I invested in, I bought one condo in the year 2000. It was a beautiful building, one bedroom, one bath, small condominium, it cost $200,000. And for many years I rented it out, never made any money off it, didn't really lose any money on it. In 2011, after that big real estate crash, I went to refinance my mortgage on that condominium. And when you go to reappraise, uh, 
when you go to refinance your condo, they're going to send out an appraiser who will now set the value. How much is your condo worth? So in 2011, they reappraised my condo that I bought for $200,000. It was now worth only $120,000. So in 11 years, I lost $80,000 on my investment. I was a bit disappointed, a little angry, a little sad. But after a week, I realized, wait a minute. That was an okay investment in the year 2000, but now it's selling at 40% off. And I was still collecting the same amount of money in rent. So if I reset the value at $120,000 and collected the same amount of money in rent, it now turned into an awesome, excellent investment. Okay, uh, back everyone. Apologies for the delay there. We had a little bit of a technical hiccup. Uh, you know, but that's life as a digital nomad. Sometimes you lose connection. So, Rick, I, uh, you can kind of continue on your story here about. Uh, your real estate investing. Are you able to edit these videos? Yeah, keep going. Just uh, keep talking about your real estate investing. Um, okay, so um, after I learned I lost all that money, mm -hmm. when I got the condo appraised, then um, I realized it was a good investment because I would be able to buy at a 40% discount but collect the same amount of money and run. So excellent cash flow and the properties were 40% off. So then I started viewing and viewing more and more properties and seeing what properties were a good fit where I was able to generate a strong cash flow and buy these properties at 30, 40, 50, 60% off their prices from 2008. So over a couple of years, I built out a, small portfolio where I owned a couple of apartments mm -hmm. and now my role is I hold on to these apartments, rent them out and manage them. I've set it up in such a way I can be anywhere in the world as long as I have of course Wi-Fi and internet. <laughs> you know so, speaking of Wi-Fi so sometimes you don't always have that good internet right? Yeah so for instance this morning one of my tenants was emailing me and She's like, oh, I want you know this repaired. I want this done. 
I want to hold a party in the party room in the building. So, um, you know, via internet, via Skype, I'm able to work through these issues and keep my tenants happy and the rent checks rolling in. That's awesome. That's definitely a luxury to have because then you can focus on your travels and your big goal, which is to actually visit every country on this universe, especially on this planet. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your travels uh, from, uh, you know, becoming a real estate mogul, if you will, uh, to, uh, you know, counting countries. Yeah. So the United Nations states that there's 193 countries in the world today. So I set a goal for myself to visit each of these countries. I am currently at 110 countries, which sounds pretty good until you realize I still have 83 more countries to go, which is also a pretty big and daunting number. Um, I'm hoping to be at 120 countries by the end of this year. So I've got my work set up for me still, and then I'm hoping to add 10 to 20 new countries a year so i can hopefully finish this goal off in about five years we'll see um, some of the countries are very difficult to visit in terms of visa like in saudi arabia they don't like to issue tourist visas or they they actually don't issue tourist visas then you have some countries which are just simply dangerous like a libya or afghanistan and then you have some countries which are just sort of uh, expensive or remote when you think of all the islands in the Pacific. So those are the three tough categories of countries left. I, I still get some other easy countries to go, but uh, more than halfway and making progress. Hey, Rick, are you still there? I am here. Okay, we, weird internet we're having today, apologies. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit, little bit about how uh, you intend to achieve it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, currently you said 110, uh, you, you know, about 10 or 20 uh, a year. Do you do it based on geography? For example, you're in, uh, I think, uh, Thailand right now. Do you cover Asia at what time, and then you uh, cover South America at a time? Was it a little bit more random, or is it based on uh, your interest? How do you actually choose which are the 10 or 20 countries to visit per day, uh, per, per year? 